So here we are, starting our podcast. Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day here in Nova Scotia. What's it like in Columbus, Ohio, Tuesday? Do you know what? It is warm and it feels amazing, but it's rainy. So that's like slightly disappointing, but but also everything's better when it's warm. So I'm not going to complain. It's rainy, but it's still beautiful because spring is coming. Like it is everything lets you know that spring is coming. So I would just not complain. Trees are budding. Birds are chirping. Oh, yeah. Full on. My son, Ollie, doesn't like it as much, though. He likes the cold. He's got eczema, right? And so and so, the more he sweats, the more uncomfortable his skin is often, you know? Oh, yeah. And so, like, he loves the cold, you know? Oh, I just read about someone who was, like, feeling resentful about the return of the light. I was like, what are you saying? Like, <laughs> how is that even possible? <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't have that issue. I will, like go out and stand and just like close my eyes and look at the sun during the summer, during the winter, just to like soak it up. Yes. I've been telling Ollie that Iceland would be a good option. Mm. Doesn't get too warm, super progressive country, amazing landscape Nice. in between North America and Europe. It's like, you know, small population. It's like made for him. Yeah, it is. It is. And John Grant is there as well. Who's, you know, an amazing musician. Is that right? Yeah. And he likes John Grant too. Oh. Well, look, anyway, we're, Obviously not here to discuss the weather and the benefits of living in Iceland, although they are many. <laughs> <laughs> what are we here to discuss, Tim? Yes, indeed. Well, we someone, where's that? Someone, there's a, there's a the reminder just came in. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. Uh, the production team just passed over the uh, reminder of the agenda for today. It wasn't me just rustling a piece of paper next to the microphone. So we've had the remarkable opportunity to interview Carolyn Townsend and uh, Pascal Boschier on the pod. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've been doing is we've kind of like worked the pod in sections this season. And, you know, we had our, we've had our mentors, we've got some, we had some colleagues and now we've had some clients essentially. So funny to call people clients to me because uh-huh. in our line of work, you build relationships to these people because you go through a fair amount of hell and high water together, Yep. you know? Yep. And so it's not as simple as, yes, yeah, the client somehow implies that it's a purely transactional relationship, which it is not only that by any stretch of the imagination. So that was great. And maybe one other thing before we kick in is that I was just on um, LinkedIn with a man today and he had got in touch with me about the podcast and saying how much he enjoyed the podcast. Mm. I asked him which pod he preferred of all of them. Yeah. And uh, this is a a man called Peter Rost, R-O-S-T. And Peter, I hope you're listening. Many greetings. Thanks for getting in touch over LinkedIn. Mm. Hello, Peter. Yeah. And, and he was saying he loved the pods, obviously, with, you know, he went superstar. So it was like Arowana, Meg and Adam. He loved those pods. But of the pods so far, the one he enjoyed the most was when you and I summarized and did some reflection on having those three speakers on the pod. Isn't that cool? No way. Yeah. And, and that we didn't just like pile on with another super intense speaker. There was an opportunity to digest it and make sense of it and transition to the next thing. So I thought that was a nice bit of feedback. So these kind of little stop gaps in between the incredible people we get to have on the pod and interview, uh, I think they serve a good purpose. Oh, I love to hear that. Thank you so much, Peter, for that feedback, because I have wondered, I'm like, do people care about our reflections or would they just like get the people on? You know what I mean? Like I just, have, I wondered. So now Peter has given us one answer. Right. Indeed. Indeed. And of course, you know, if you're not into the reflections uh, from Choose and I on the amazing people we interview and you just want to hear us interview people, uh, you should turn off now. 
Uh, it's a good moment to tune out. Because <laughs> this is going to be me and Tuesday talking to each other. We had these remarkable humans, right? Pascal Poche, Carolyn Townsend, mm-hmm. very different types and scale of leader. You know, you've got Pascal, who is chief of operations, 15,000 people underneath him, global reach for what they're doing, you know, 150-year-old organization that has grown in an incredibly additive way, like big if there's a problem, let's just add another office or another department, you know what I mean, or another person or the International Committee of the Red Cross. And then we've got Carolyn Townsend, you know, who comes from a communications background and then has just stepped up to lead some incredibly progressive local work across the region on the east coast of Canada in Nova Scotia. And so just like very, very different, but, but quite remarkable, some of the patterns, I think, that connected the two of them in how they thought about their work. And um, maybe that's where we could start is a couple of things that stood out yeah. from us across those two. And, and one of the things that I think that they're both really good at is communicating fundamentally innovative work to a dominant system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think they're both incredibly tough. I think we have a lot to learn from them and we had a lot learning with them. But yeah, did, did you find that? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that for me is like when I think of Carolyn, I think like that is like her superstar skill, right? She can just take the ideas and make them understandable to funders, to like the public. I think like that's like, it's kind of like her superpower. And then Pascal was doing that all the time. He was just a translator all the time for our work into the organization. And so I think for me, that feels like when we talk about systems change, then that ability to communicate into a dominant system is going to be a skill that needs to be developed. And I'm really curious because as you were introducing this, Tim, I thought, right, and neither one of them came from facilitation or systems change backgrounds. And it feels maybe quite important, right? So Pascal came from banking and Carolyn came from communications and sport. And so I'm just curious about... I think it says a couple of things about systems change being a fairly newer field, right? Like you don't get a bunch of university degrees. People aren't coming in with their master's in systems change to want to work for the outside, right? So it's a fairly new field and people are coming from different places into it. And I think that that's a a really exciting place for language to develop because I think ever since I entered this field, ever since people have been talking about the language and how it doesn't work and how it's too obtuse. And these are two people who for sure, part of their role and part of their success has been their ability to communicate in a dominant systems. Right. And what I will say, like one of the things I think that's come up in our work a lot is um, you have to experience it to understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, ever since we started, ever since I started the art of hosting like 20 odd years ago now, and uh, like it was, uh, you know, I can't really explain it to you. You've just got to come along. Yeah. And that's just, I, we've said on the pod before, that's insufficient. Yeah. It's an insufficient way to approach the scale and scope of work that we get invited to or bluntly that just needs to be done in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And so what I will say is that both Carolyn and Pascal were transformed by the experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like intellectually and personally, like conceptually challenged some of the kind of uh, beliefs and understandings of how change could happen. Personally, both of these people went through major personal transformations, you know, in tandem with the work we were doing. So it was the experience that fueled their ability to articulate it. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that's I think that's just important to notice. Like it's not that the it's not that you have to experience it to get it. You might have to experience it to find the words. Right. You know? But we can't just say we can't talk about it. And then then it's just like some weird fringe culty thing. Bunch of c- 
cult nut jobs on the edge of society going round and round in self-reinforcing circles of self-love and acknowledgement, not getting any change done. And, I don't know, I'm just talking now, but, 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 you know, I think there is something about both of these people, I, I feel like they didn't, they didn't, they weren't just using that, they had to find new words to describe something. Yes. They had to find ways to articulate it. They were just able to do that in a way in ICRC where it worked itself up a very complex hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And with Carolyn, where it worked its way out across a very complex network of stakeholders that is local and national. So stay with me for a minute, because I'm gonna I'm just gonna like do a little meander, right? So Carolyn's skill is communications and she's so good at it. And it, but it's a skill she came into it with. So I think, okay, so that makes some sense. She had a transformation. She's probably looking for words for it to describe what was happening for her and the work. Pascal, I think, coming from banking, I think he was really clear when he talked with us that part of that was being in very different environments, right? Different countries, different roles. He's the Swiss French-speaking man, right, who had to adapt and figure out how to communicate and how to connect and how to get work done in such a variety of places that it feels like that may be why he's able to translate, right? Like that, mm. like his his role for 15 years out in the field was translation to different kinds of people. And so why I said come with me is that that makes sense. That makes sense to me. But it really also supports our work in equity. When we talk about people, especially folks who have had less access being able to translate or bridge in a way because they've actually had to walk in multiple worlds, right? In in their lives, right? So people talk about code switching and things like that as a negative, right? Like you have to be one way at home and one way at work. And I think most of us code switch to some extent. But it also occurs to me like this is also a case for diversity and equity work in that people who have had to navigate different circumstances will maybe, maybe necessarily be more able to communicate this work. I know it's a little bit of a leap, but that just occurred to me like there's something really important here around different experiences too. Mate, uh, you know, I am not just a supporter of, I'm an advocate of the circuitous route. Like I just want to like, thank you yeah. for taking this there. So the, and it feels like such common sense what you're saying, mm-hmm. right? Like in some ways it's like actually a training in systems change. I go do your master's in systems change may actually not be the best thing. Mm-hmm. It's like go and have as varied and diverse experiences of life as possible. Yes. Yeah. Right. And then do the work. Right. I mean, I think you and I often find this. We often find ourselves in this kind of dialogue about how much of the training that is out there, both in this field and around equity, actually only serves to further entrench people. Right. Right. It only serves to further polarize or to further isolate. Mm-hmm. When actually the whole point of this work is the opposite of that. The whole point of this work is to generate curiosity and understanding and desire to act in relationship to people who are fundamentally different than you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like the more you think you've studied it to the point where you know what you're doing, the less helpful you are. Right, right, right. Because I actually, the other thing that I think is a thread between these people, as accomplished Carolyn and Pascal are, as accomplished as they both are, and I think we could never doubt that both of them are like quite spectacular, right? They're quite spectacular and competent. They also have a level of humbleness, like curiosity, like how does that work? Tell me more. Like they actually really bring 
alongside their competence, they bring a level of curiosity and humbleness, which also mm. feels like, yeah, you don't get that in systems change school. Probably. I don't know. I never been. Not that we are not, not that either of us went to systems change school. Exactly. <laughs> went to the school of life, man. <laughs> we did the school of life. Hard knocks, school of hard knocks. <laughs> so I think that's true. So there's something about this, like, I just, I'm just going to go back to that, like, diversity of experiences yeah. is the best training, Yeah. you know, and it's the best training to, like, be in relationships, it's the best training to be able to find language that is able to communicate what you're doing, but it's my experience of traveling, especially as a young man, was that it was, it was a perfect antidote for arrogance. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. It's the perfect antidote for, you know, 21 leaving England, going to Japan, Mm. you know, and encountering a culture that was so radically different to mine in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. You just like, you get a sense of your own proportion, don't you? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you travel around the world and you engage with things that are bigger than the pond you normally swim in, you know, I think there is something to be said for that, you know, and uh, yeah, I love that. All right. Both of these people went through significant personal transformation uh, as they both talked about on the on the pods, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm going to make like a, a, a circuitous route little thing here. We're going to meander off another way, but we're going to come back to the main path here, which I think is that this type of work demands some real kind of like optimism and faith, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that that by its nature is quite a vulnerable place to put yourself. Yeah, 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 and that we are being we're acting from a basis of optimism and faith, often in a context that is designed to thwart us. Yeah. And how vulnerable that can be. Mm-hmm. And how much that can lead to personal transformation of this, like, you know, we can do this, we can tackle something, we can really shift something, you know? And all of that kind of like beautiful beginning that often happens in these very large scale projects, you know? And then suddenly you're navigating through the very jagged rocks of a very small pass. Mm -hmm. So I just think there's a connection there between this kind of like personal transformation, Mm -hmm. the hope, the optimism and hope and faith it requires to really get going. And then somehow that like the relentlessness of the path. Yeah. And I would say that both of these folks experience the heartbreak of the relentlessness of that path, right? Which might be like that goes like really hand in hand with the transformation. You know, what we know, what, what is that Leonard Cohen lyric that everyone quotes? The light is where the, the crack is where the light gets in or something like that. So you got it, but thanks Leonard. And there's something about that these folks, yes, it's like, it's like holding yourself open with that optimism. And that means the arrows will come and they inevitably do. And like that, but, and that is part of it, right? Like if you open your heart or your chest to optimism and and we can do this and the arrows don't come. I don't know if you get that kind of transformation. Although, I mean, I think it's impossible. The arrows will come, but like, it seems to me like there's something about the vulnerability of opening up to optimism and then the transformation almost being dependent on some of those arrows because that's where you learn what your metal is right? Like, am I in or am I out? Do I believe in this or do I not? Can I face the heartbreak of it? Didn't, didn't we do an episode once about the heartbreak of systems? Change? It's actually one of my favorite pods that we've ever done. Oh, is that right? It was the pod on heartbreak. Oh. Yeah. And it was early on. It was the first two seasons, I think. Okay. I want to go back and listen. But we just made that direct connection between kind of heartbreak and the work. Mm-hmm. 
we just put out an article on LinkedIn today called The Conversational Nature of Reality. And it's a, it's a wonderful little article. And I'd encourage folks just to go check it out. All the articles turn up on our kind of LinkedIn page. But on it is this beautiful, beautiful quote from David White, who's a, he's a British poet, actually, from the north of England in Yorkshire. And um, I'll just read it because I think it connects mm-hmm. to what you're saying. First of all, one of the powerful dynamics of leadership is being visible. One of the vulnerabilities of being visible is that when you are visible, you can be seen. Mm-hmm. And when you can be seen, you can be touched. And when you can be touched, you can be hurt. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that gets to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like, it's a risky business. Yeah. It's a heartbreaking business. Yeah. Yeah. To step into the audacity and scale of change that these two leaders do, that we're lucky enough to accompany people along. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like we can certainly, Tim, that I can think of our own times of heartbreak. And I always think, and I'm not even directly, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're consultants in and I can feel heartbreak. The idea of like being like the people who are in it and work for it. I think that that's exactly right. I love that David White poem. And I think that there's something about, you know how like one of the great spiritual teachings is, is like accept life as it is right? Like in every, in every single tradition, there's like a, this is what it is. <laughs> Acceptance is the way, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> All the way down to AA serenity prayer, right? Like it's like every tradition has like, accept this is what it is. And so I think that that's part of what we're saying, like systems change as exciting, as exhilarating and as audacious and ambitious. And like, that gives me a rush, even saying those words, it is just what life is, which means it is like disheartening, heartbreaking, horribly disappointing, terrifying. You know, so when we get in and want all of the one, we have to kind of expect the other. And and necessarily, I think the systems change if you're in it builds the capacity for the heartbreak or the capacity to be with it. But it also, I think, builds the capacity to hope and have that audaciousness, right? So like, both of those things, if they're both what systems change is, then your capacity to feel both is bigger. Oh my gosh. And also like the survival of heartbreak mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for me is the root of optimism. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's the root of what is the survival of, I mean, it has been in my own life. Yep. For sure. For sure. When I was a kid growing up, I can't remember what age I read Jonathan Livingston's Seagull. Mm. Do you know that book, Richard Bark, whatever? I've got all kinds of like weird feelings about it as an adult now, but but there was one I remember when you were talking. I ended up on my dad's like Commodore sixty four, typing up a bunch of quotes uh-huh. and then printing them out in this funny script, and then cutting them up and putting them on my uh, chest of drawers in my bedroom. Oh, Tim Mary. And one of the quotes I can still see it when you're saying is, "The original sin is to limit the is, don't." <laughs> like it yeah all right mm. i'll take that that seems like a good one <laughs> you know i love it the original sin is to limit the years don't i also just like the idea of little tim mary typing out and putting up quotes around like i just kind of love that yeah i actually ended up giving that exact chest of drawers to my son ollie who i was talking about earlier the one with eczema and the quotes were still like blue tacked onto it you know no way yeah, yeah. so we took the quotes off and we put them in the top drawer you know, but like, you know, the quotes have been there so long that like those areas of just like the blue tax sucks all the moisture out. So you've got these little dots where the, where the quotes were stuck up. It's not lovely. Anyway. Yeah. I love it. It makes me want to 
put quotes on a box for somebody and like give it. Do you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't that be a lovely gift? My uh, daughter one year did uh, memory boxes for everybody. Mm. And what it is that she made, she handmade a little cardboard box using origami, little paper box using origami for everybody. And then she wrote out memories of them that she'd had with them growing up and put them in the box. And then that's all the Christmas presents she gave out. Oh my God. Like I've never seen so many people cry at Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to cry now. It was beautiful. I mean, it was like truly treasured gifts, Aww. truly treasured gifts. And maybe that's a little bit of what we get with these people. Yeah. You know, we get the memory of these, like, it's not like they're all, I mean, they are memories of heartbreak as much as their memories of progress and breakthrough. Their memories of breakdown just as much, you know? And, uh, and of course that's, that's the fiber of relationship, isn't it? Yeah. All of that. It's the fiber of it. That's the forge within which our relationships happen and our work grows in strength and impact. Yeah. I think that that's exactly right. And it just also, the other thing I think we get from them, I mean, like these, these stories and like, just like, you know, when I think of them, I want to touch my heart. I feel so grateful and happy that they joined us. And the other thing that we get that I feel like I turn around and say to the outside world all of the time is, and I hope, I hope the listeners get it too, right? Is this idea that there are really good people in broken systems, right? That I feel like I must say that all of the time when people are feeling, it's not that I never feel down or negative, but like when people are talking about how terrible the world is going and how awful things are, I tend to say, yeah, I know that to be true. And, and yet I work with amazing people doing good stuff every day. So it's quite a, it's quite hard for me to feel that everything's going to hell in a handbasket because I'm working with such good people all the time, every day. My reality is these are good people in broken systems. And yes, the broken systems might win and the people who are not good in the systems might win. But my, like, if I look at what's in front of me, if I look at Carolyn Townsend and Pascal Porsche and all of the other people we've talked to this season, these are good people in broken systems, but they're trying, they're giving it a go. And I don't know what else could give me hope in these times. So I'm hoping that the listeners also feel that. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just like an immediate, like all the people out there in broken systems, good people in broken systems. Thank you. Yeah. And to some extent, we're all that. Yeah. All of us are that in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but just like, you know, yeah, just like thank you for the work you're doing. Yeah. There's some quote again, but something about like the value is not in the results, it's in the work itself. Mm -hmm. Some beautiful quote somewhere from someone. Isn't there a Merton quote like that? Is it John, Is it Thomas Merton? It is. It's Thomas Merton, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think so. It is. It's Thomas Merton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bill Cass used to quote that one all the time, didn't he? Yeah, he's a big, he's a big Thomas Merton fan. So are you going to find it for us? Totally am. Great. Yeah. But I, I feel like that's true for a lot of us, mm -hmm. you know, like we're out there doing the work and we don't know if we're going to get the results, whether we're working on the environment, whether we're working on organizational change, whether we're working, you know, grassroots within our communities, like, but uh, it's, it's ultimately not about the results. Here's the quote. Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve, even achieve no result at all if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. Hmm. You gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. 
<laughs> In the end, it is the reality of personal relationships that saves everything. Mm. I mean, that kind of summarizes a lot of what we've been talking about with these two today, doesn't it? I think so. I think so. Thank you for finding that. That was beautiful and a good place to end, I think. Mm. Well, friends, thank you for tuning in. Keep listening. We love it that you tune in. Ever want to drop us a line? You can find us. Yeah. We're on LinkedIn. We were on Facebook, but not really anymore. But we are on LinkedIn now. Take care, friends. Have a good one. Thanks so much.